people might feel like they're burnt out momentarily, but they might just be tired or they might be distressed or they might just be exhausted. So burnout is the end result of all of that. Cumulative, you know, it accumulates over, it can be weeks, months or years, and the end result is burnout. And burnout usually is a sign of dysfunction. So when you're burnt out, you're not functional anymore. You cannot do your normal duties, your normal jobs that you normally do. They're all you know, very hard to do. A good, a good measure to know that you're burnt out is if you have a good night's sleep or a few good night's sleeps in a row and you're still exhausted, chances are you're burnt out. How do you get 10,000 people to take a step to the left? What's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion? Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are the sum of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders, curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs, and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high performance leadership expert, international speaker, and CEO of Speakers Institute Corporate and World Sport Coach. This is the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast with ordinary don't belong. Welcome to the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. I'm beyond excited today to introduce our guest, a renowned mindfulness and performance coach who has dedicated his life's work to helping others achieve success, overcome burnout, and unlock their true potential. With over three decades of experience, his approach is grounded in neuroscience, mindfulness, human behavior, and leadership training. Among other unique tools that he that help his clients find self-awareness, clarity, and focus. But what truly sets him apart is his fascinating life of cycling and trekking more than 30,000 kilometers across five continents, which adds a unique and refreshing perspective to his lessons. He has worked with some of the most respected global Fortune 500 companies, CEOs, managers, and directors, as well as elite athletes, entrepreneurs, and individuals who strive to be the absolute best at their craft. He teaches others how to stay energized, perform at their best, and conquer burnout, all while drawing on his wealth of experience and expertise. So get ready to be inspired, motivated, and empowered as we dive into the mind of Mello Kalako and learn how he has helped transform the lives and careers of countless individuals. Mello, welcome to the show. Thank you, Craig. Really nice to be here. and I'm really looking forward to this conversation today. Uh, and it's, a, it's very topical right now, the areas of performance and burnout and well-being, mental health. So yeah, excited about where this uh, interview and conversation is going to take us. Fantastic. I'm curious, where did you grow up and what was the big dream for you when you were a child? Where did I grow up? So I grew up in South Australia, um, beach sort of side, Henley Beach, Grange Beach area. Beautiful area, nice sort of easygoing lifestyle. Um, what did I dream of as a child? Um, I think I always 
like to help people, like to sort of, you know, in, in some way, shape or form. My cycling trip that I did take an adventure wasn't really the exact dream that I had, but I always knew that I wanted to roam around the world and travel and experience different cultures, places, people, um, belief systems and all that sort of thing. So it turned out to be a cycling adventure that I did in the end. But yeah, just in, as a child, I always wanted, I knew there was more out there, definitely more than Adelaide, that's for sure. <laughs> Was that inspired by your parents or other people around you to think bigger than South Australia? No, probably the opposite, actually, in some ways. My parents are immigrants from Italy, so they came over um, in the late 40s after the war and you know, made a life you know, here in, in Australia. And yeah, they didn't really encourage me to explore too much. In fact, the opposite, you know, sort of let's stay here, build a house, build a family and all those sort of things. Um, you know, lots of love and lots of respect and all those fantastic things. So, so I actually needed to open my own doors and be a bit of a black sheep of a family. Actually, when I, when I did decide on, I said, I'm going to go cycling around the world. Most of my family and friends said the opposite. You're crazy, Melo. Don't do that. You know, you're, what's going to happen out there in Africa and all of those things, which actually inspired me even more to do it. Uh, so you're one of those people that like to go against the mold and <laughs> if someone tells you you can't do something, you're the first one to put your hand up and say, hey, you know what, let's find out. Exactly. <laughs> Which is great. Yeah. You know, obviously, we'll, before we dive into your 30,000 kilometers of cycling and trekking, was sport a big part of your childhood? You know, obviously, if you're going to jump on a bike for that many Ks, it, there must be something in there from a athletic point of view. Mm, not not so much on, from a competitive competitive point of view more like to compete with myself and, and push my own physical limits and boundaries in many ways yes I followed sport yes I played sport and yes I, I love to play all sports whether it was football or tennis or surfing or rock climbing or whatever it was but not from a competitive level um what I I'm not much of a measurer you know for example some of the people that I'd cycle my cycle around with that have their little you know odometers on their bike and they've been measuring every single kilometer and saying you know Mello, we've just reached 220 kilometers now and and measure everything i was just more for the feeling of it for the actual just enjoying the scenery of riding it didn't matter if it was 200 kilometers or 250 or, or 300 but I, I did like to always you know, stay mentally fit and healthy and also i practiced a lot of martial arts and um, in my younger years and I very quickly realized that the power of the mind was as important than the strength of the body. So that's where I started you know, crossing over my training. So I was always challenging myself mentally and physically in any way that I could. Very good. I like that. The, the power of the mind is more important than the strength of the body. Uh, it certainly is. And you know, I used to enjoy the days where I would turn off the cycle computer when i was training as an elite athlete and i, and I tried to dedicate one day a week where i just go exploring and adventuring uh, mm -hmm. i didn't even know what roads i was going to take uh, most of the time i'd end up and i ended up i love the phrase of go get lost yeah uh, and then just try and figure out how how you get your way back and when i first started doing that in taiwan there was a lot of places that still didn't have signs in english and so you'd end up in the back of the mountain somewhere and you had no idea where you were. <laughs> and so it's so beautiful to find your way back. And I'm sure you have some great stories around that, uh, you, you know, your trek. Yeah. Uh, but before we do go there, what was your first job? 
first job, my very first job, a fiberglass factory. So making making swimming pools and um, pot plants and, and things like that. It's actually my my parents worked there, so they said, "Oh, we've got to get you a job and make some money." So that was my my first ever job, fiberglass factory. Yeah, wow. And, and from there, like you obviously, you know, you didn't want to make a career of that. Where did you kind of understand what you wanted to focus on in your career, um, and, and maybe did that shift? At, at times throughout your your working life yeah definitely definitely so a constant evolution in progress basically and i really you know obviously i don't want to work in a factory all my life so i shifted out of that space pretty quickly i also did um, horticulture so i actually studied horticulture and was working out in the land and doing some great work there which i really loved and then um i steered my my training towards more physical therapy so like exercise physiology personal training and a lot of that sort of physical work where i specialized more in difficult situations or challenging clients challenging people that might have had some sort of chronic pain problem or chronic injury and it usually led to some sort of mental health problem also so i very quickly realized that it wasn't personal training as, as you know, someone wants to build up biceps and get stronger. It was more like mental slash personal training. And that constantly evolved. And then from, from working in that space there, I started working in mental health clinics. So I worked in um, four psychiatric clinics. And then I designed well-being programs and mindfulness programs for the inpatients and the outpatients. And it absolutely fascinated me to no end the, the mind again and, and, and the connection of the body and mind. And then that slowly sort of evolved into what I do now. I still I still do work in mental health to some extent. I still, you know, coach and help a few people. But now I'm sort of working on the other end of the scale where I'm you know, coaching CEOs, executives, surgeons, um, and a whole range of things. So I just pretty much just followed my heart along the way, pretty much just followed what was being attracted to me. I definitely didn't plan to work in mental health at all. Like it wasn't part of the plan, but while I was working in the the physical therapies sort of part of it, I, I, I realized, wow, actually, most of the people coming to me aren't coming for physical help, they're coming for mental help. So I, I crossed that line there. And that's when I designed those programs. I had a conversation earlier this week where I was talking about that, you know, as an elite coach, and as a CEO, 50% of my role, um, and the work that I did was care. Mm, yeah. And, and so, you know, that, that whole thing around the mental health, the well-being, the connecting with people, the mindset, et cetera, it's just care. And people, people want to know someone is out there that cares about them, about their little problems they have or big problems they have. Um, mm. And that they, they feel like that's the, whatever they do in this world really matters to someone else. Uh, that's so right. Yeah. Those areas you've worked in, I, I'm sure you, that was a big part of what you did. Yeah, and supporting people through all sorts of things. People might come to you for one reason that they think they're coming to you for, and then it's something very different. Now, I remember working with, for example, a, a barrister, and it was in the physical therapies place that so he was coming to me to stay physically strong and healthy and fit. And I remember doing a bit of a, a release on his shoulder at the end of the session, just releasing. He said, I've got a bit of pain in my shoulder, in the back of my shoulder. And this barrister, by the way, you know, wouldn't give me anything personal at all, none of his problems 
from home and he was going through a whole lot of um, series of problems. And I did this little physical release on his shoulder and he just opened up and told me his decades of problems of, you know, work and relationships and alcohol and everything. So the, the portal was the physical, you know, connection, but then actually in, in so much, so many ways, it was more a mental support and um, connection, which was fantastic. Isn't it interesting how you can unlock someone by relieving something first, right? So you, you, and I think it comes back to this whole thing around you should give before you receive. And in a way, that's what you're doing for this person, right? You gave them something that, mate, was frustrating them, I'm sure, for a while, this barrister around this pain he had. You were able to relieve that, which then gave permission and kind of a psychological safety then to open up and say, hey, look, I need help with other things. You seem like yes. a, a person that helps people. <laughs> Can you help me with these other things that are totally unrelated to what you were doing? Exactly. And afterwards, he thanked me. And he said, oh, Mello, that was a fantastic session. That was great. He wouldn't admit that because he talked so much, that was what it was about. But, oh, my shoulder feels so much better. And I just feel so much better now because he just offloaded, you know, decades of pain and trauma and things like that. So it just gave him the, the opportunity to do that. And we see so much of that in this world where people hold on to things. They Because they don't talk about them, they don't try and deal with them or they don't know how to deal with them. So they hold things inside. And what may have just been a little molehill uh, mole becomes a massive mountain over time. So for people, you know, especially those a bit younger in their career, et cetera, or younger in their, in their life, what are some things that you would recommend in regards to helping people understand one, the importance of dealing with the little things and, you know, some, some ways or some techniques that they can do that easily. What do you mean by little things? So little things build up, you know, like, and, and they, they let them sit there, but they don't deal with them. Okay. Yeah. So expressing it. So, Great question in many ways. So in many ways, emotions. Are, so you're triggering some emotion responses typically. So so if somebody's feeling an emotion, it might be a bit of anger at work or a bit of you know, sadness or a bit of fear. The best thing to do is obviously express it in any way possible. So express it so it doesn't harm somebody. So in some way, talk about it and open up. So for example, you might be at, in the workplace and somebody says something that fires you up, but you don't respond to that and then you bottle that up and then the next time somebody else says something and you just keep bottling that up the healthiest approach to that would be to express it in a way you could even say something like you know what you said just upset me you know i'm not sure you know what to do but you know let's talk about it let's you know let's have a conversation so with any there is a natural cycle of an emotion when an emotion is triggered or a feeling gets triggered let's say you know it usually gets triggered and then it reaches its peak and then it dissipates down the other side if we talk about it and express it but if we don't express it and we suppress it, we all have our own coping strategies around this. It might be distraction. It might be you know, other things that we do to not face that emotion. And we don't express it. It just keeps raising its ugly head. So, you know, please talk about it. Please open up those conversations. Please express those emotions before they get sort of held in and become bigger. Like you said, the mountains out of molehills. We've seen progress in this area in the workforce, but in 2023 do you think the workforce globally is actually ready for people to express themselves i think in many ways more so in a way and especially after the last few years of the pandemic it's definitely opened up 
the mental health conversation in many ways, especially here in Australia. We're pretty good at it anyway with, you know, Beyond Blue and Black Dog Institute and all these, you know, great organisations opening up those conversations. Um, but it depends on the level on, on what they are prepared to speak. I just came off a session right now with a, a company going through um, a lot of mental health issues due to change and not all of them are speaking about it, so I'm facilitating the space where they can talk about it and it is okay to actually speak about it. And in many ways, the more people speak about mental health challenges and anxiety and uncertainty and fear and all, all of these things, the more it opens up that within the culture of that organisation. Yeah, but we still, we still see quite a few people out there that are afraid of if mm -hmm. I speak up, what is going to be the repercussions of that? Um, you know, whether That's individually right. or bigly, uh, you know, more, um, you know, throughout the whole organization. Yes. How can CEOs or leaders of organizations or teams create a space where through the, through the environment they create, people know that they can open up, open up and express themselves in those situations without fear yeah i see it in different organizations in different ways that i work with and um, probably the most powerful um i've ever seen powerful campaign that i've ever seen is when the the leaders themselves like the ceos and the general managers and directors themselves talk about their own struggles or talk about their own experiences and the most powerful one i've ever seen was from a general manager who just made a one minute video literally a one minute video about him suffering anxiety and some of the struggles that he had with it that got teleported across the whole organization in the intranet and just him opening up and talking about that and this is a very senior leader i'm talking about it, it created a safe space for everybody else to actually speak about it mm. they thought well if he's actually struggling it's okay for me to talk about it too it's like it's okay for me to open up that conversation so it is about normalizing the conversation and, and showing a bit of vulnerability as a leader even as a CEO and inviting people into that discussion. Um, it's really important to, to feel that we're on an even playing field when it comes to mental health. Should there be some boundaries between your mental health and what you're feeling in the workplace versus maybe what's going on in your own home? Yes and no. I guess the boundary would be if you, if you came to work moaning every day about you know, all sorts of things and there's no you're not trying to resolve it without getting some help, for example, that may be a, a bit of a boundary there. And most of us would have some sort of venting buddy that we have at work that you know we can talk to. So as long as you've got one or two or three people that you can speak to, you don't have to spread it across the whole organisation. But if there's a few people at work that you can speak to about that, and there's the, obviously there's professional and personal boundaries that we all know about. And it's a matter of just you know feeling safe to speak up and and creating a safe environment where you can it may not be at the workplace i encourage a lot of people that i work with just going for a walk and talk type session just getting out of the office and going for a walk and having a chat side by side and you know, sharing some of these experiences and look you know some a lot of people will be quite open to you know with one or two people being you know for them to vent mm. Should there be some boundaries around that though? Because some people might take that as an opportunity just to vent about everything. And, and as you say, it kind of falls into that moaning space in a way um, because people can only take on so much, right? That's right? You know, doesn't, you can be, especially if you're someone who's extremely empathetic, then 
mate, you're going to feel exhausted if you allow people to open up all the time to you. And then for those who are a little bit more action orientated, they're probably mm-hmm. going to, they're not going to be able to deal with too long of someone venting something. So how, yeah. how important, it, not only at the workplace, but also at home with, you know, your partner or your wife or your husband to set though, to set some sort of time limit or something like yeah. that. Yeah, I, I agree. I think there should be some boundaries, especially, especially again, like I said, if they're not actually taking action to resolve the situation. So it's one thing to talk about the problem, but if you're still talking about the same problem next week and you haven't tried anything or done anything about it and the same problem the week after and the week after, it, it, then, it's, then it's definitely like, let's just stop this conversation type thing. It's, we're not going anywhere. So as a, as a listener, for example, the, the best thing you can do is listen, you know, open-mindedly and, and empathetically and all, all of those things, and then encourage them to take some action in some way, you know, offer them some support in some way. And then beyond that, I think that that's enough. If they don't actually do anything about it and come back the next week and say the same story all over again, then I think it's definitely worth, you know, creating some boundaries around that. Yeah, and, and I think that's, you know, interesting for a company as well. At, at what point does the responsibility stop for a company and mm. and even its leaders? Because, yes, we, we have recognized and we understand the importance of making sure we create a space where people can be mentally healthy. Um, but, uh, but at what point is it, does it go too far in an organization where we're starting to deal with a whole lot of personal things that aren't associated with work? Um, mm. A little yeah. bit's good, but how far? Yeah, I, I like the, the are you okay model, for example. You might know, you might be familiar with that, where it's you know, ask, are you okay? Open up the conversation and then encourage them to take action. Well, listen, first of all, listen to the problem, encourage them to take action and then follow up, you know, like a week later or something like that. That That's enough, I think, in the scope of a workplace. You know, just that, that's a very simple model of that. Beyond that, then I think it's, you know, seeking some sort of professional help, some sort of you know, psychological help, whether it's a psychiatrist, a doctor, or referring on. And then you can just follow up and, and keep following up from that. But it shouldn't be it shouldn't be taking up too much energy and space within the workspace in the work hours, I would say. Mm. Now, Thinking about venting, you mm. were cycling and trekking for 30,000 kilometers across five countries. Who were you venting to during that time? Because <laughs> there's got to be some pretty tough times that you had to deal with. Yeah, definitely. I don't mind being alone, first of all, so I don't mind my own company. So, you know, especially crossing some of those deserts and things like that, which was beautiful. Speaking to the to the lizards or the frogs or the or the snakes or the, the gods or whatever it was or the stars, definitely number one. But to be honest, I was... I was rarely alone, to be honest. There was many times where I'll be meeting other travellers, other people, cycling with other people. You meet other cyclists along the way, trekking with other people. So, um, yeah, always just meeting interesting characters along the way. And, um, yeah, I don't know if I was venting, but sharing sharing experiences along the way. <laughs> and, and what, you know, obviously you spoke about when you were young, you wanted to explore, <laughs> see the world, but what what kind of led you to wanting to cycle and trek through these different continents? I wanted to see it in a more friendly way, as in see the world in a more friendly way. And, and cycling is a great way to see the world. You're, you're outdoors, you're, you're in the environment as opposed to looking at the environment, you're in the elements. And um, yeah, five buddies of mine, we we planned to cycle around the world on a mountain bike. We'd be doing lots of touring and we said, let's do it, let's do this crazy trip. So I was inspired to do it. 
And then one by one, unfortunately, they all backed out on me and they all said, no, for various reasons, we got the maps out of Africa, you know, Nigeria and place. Oh, no, no, that's too scary. So I ended up doing it solo and I'm so glad I did because I could do whatever I wanted at my own pace. But I always had that innate desire to, you know, to see the world. And at the time, I was a bit lost in some way, a little bit directionless, working in jobs, like I said, that were you know, a bit less meaningful. And I thought, you know what, there's more to it than this. I want to go see the world. And I was also immersed in the spiritual practices, doing a lot of meditation, doing a lot of work on myself, doing a lot of internal arts. So the plan was to, along the way, stay in as many monasteries and temples and, and all those sorts of things along the way, which was uh, great that I could do that on my own. The beautiful thing about exploring the world is that you see it from different perspectives. So was mm. there any one place or kind of environment you went into and your perceptions were totally flipped upside down from what you thought before you left to when you actually experienced being there, living it, breathing it? Mm, yeah, Africa probably stands out for me in many ways. Being far away geographically from Africa, especially in Australia, many people that will speak to me about Africa was only talk about the danger, the fear, the problems, the shooting, the disharmony, the civil unrest. But when I got there, yes, there is, you know, components of that, but I was touched by the beautiful, the beautiful people there, the children, the smiles, the beaming smiles that just lit you up with joy, so much joy, so much compassion. And in those places too, I very rarely had to pitch my own tent because people invite me into their homes and stay with me so that, the hospitality definitely of, of the African people and, and people in general around the world, um, yeah, flipped my mindset. I need, obviously, I, I entered there and did a bit of research, but the feeling that you get when you're there and the people you know, opening up their hearts and their homes to you, it's just amazing. Yeah. The one thing I've noticed, you know, traveling around the world is that up until the age of 12, every child is the same. And humor, it doesn't matter where you are in the world, it, is, it works anywhere. Exactly. After the age of 12, for whatever reason, you know, societal pressures or uh, history or culture kicks in and then you kind of lose a little bit of that. But mm. yeah, the, the joy of seeing kids running around, the smiles and the jokes you can play with them, whether you know their language or not, that, oh, that's something special that I always treasure. 100%. It's a universal happiness, isn't it? It goes beyond language. It goes beyond words. And typically when, when you're cycling into a village or you're coming into a village, you get a convoy of kids chasing you, following you into the village and smiling and laughing at you, with you. And then typically as you arrive in the village, you start playing games with them. Everyone would joke with me that people that knew me, if you, if you found a group of kids laughing and playing, you knew Mello was somewhere in the middle of that group there, <laughs> having fun. And then from that, the parents would see you having fun with the kids and they say, come over for a you know, cup of tea or whatever it is. And then you're invited into their home. So it's a universal joy that is, yeah, it's beautiful to see. Uh, so incredible memories. And happiness, you know, which is obviously what a lot of people seek uh, or would like to seek if they're dealing with mental mm -hmm. health challenges and things and the demands of life how and it's a big it's a hot topic right everyone's talking about yeah. that everyone's sort of seeking happiness so how can we how can people you know i'm, I'm thinking younger people here but also people it doesn't matter what age but yeah for the younger people, how can you kind of prevent yourself from falling into those traps of 
missing out on happiness or forgetting about what the, the importance of happiness yeah it's always there my my definition of happiness in some ways is it's always there inside of you underneath you, you know, happiness or joy is your natural state of being it's underneath everything if we strip away all the layers of stress and anxiety and fear and all those other societal layers in many ways it's there already so it's not an external thing that you seek yes some external things can give you happiness and joy but it's something that's there you know already so look around you it's always there gratitude looking around for what you're grateful for i do a gratitude practice every single day and i share with other people to do that and i write that down because the more you start writing it down you start looking for the little things even the you know the coffee guy that smiles at you in the morning or the person that lets you in you know, in the traffic or the person that opens the door for you happiness and joy are around you all the time we just need to open our eyes for it a bit more mm. Mm. you spoke about mindfulness there before and and going through different practices and learning things along the way uh, it's becoming more commonplace and uh, as well I, the important, like for you, when you're working with clients, how much does mindfulness play a part in working with leaders or working with people, uh, to become more high performing in a way? In many ways, it actually underpins most of the work that I do, to be honest. So somewhere underneath, even if we don't label it and call it mindfulness, you know, it is you know, self-awareness, it is focus, it is attention training. I teach meditation to, to CEOs, for example, and I, I'm very careful with the word meditation because you know, many people have preconceptions of it. I'll say, let's go you know, train our attention or let's go refocus or reset. And before you know it, we're practicing mindfulness and meditation and it actually works. So it underpins everything in many ways. One of the fundamentals of any good leader is self-awareness. You know, the first step is self-awareness, being aware of your own energy, capacities, your behaviors, how you lead, how you work. So self-awareness is number one and, and mindfulness is one of the best ways to develop that self-awareness. Mm. Brilliant. Uh, mm. And in regards to leaders uh, that you work with, you know, not only self-awareness, but awareness of situations and others is such a crucial part. I, I think we quite often get caught in the detail of what we're doing and in the meeting. Uh, so how can people approach what they're doing from a leadership point of view in a way that they become a lot more aware of not only themselves, but also others in the environment they're in. Yeah. So again, coming into that mindfulness sort of pattern there and self-awareness when it comes to emotional intelligence, for example, you know, in many ways, the first two pieces or the fundamental pillars of emotional intelligence and you know, reading the room and getting to know the people around you, and working together as a team is that first step is that self-awareness number one of, of of self and then how that also interplays with the people around you you know so with empathy and compassion and kindness in many ways so if you can know yourself on a deeper level and get to know yourself really deeply get to know what pushes the buttons from you what actually triggers an emotional response with you what affects you what behaviors what patterns you have mm -hmm. yourself then you know how that interplays and reacts with others. I always encourage people that are just about to go into a meeting, for example, like a big meeting where it might be a bit heated, uh, a leadership type meeting or a board, is just to stop and pause for a while. Maybe do a two minute sort of breathing practice, connect with yourself first, and then bring yourself into that room and just be fully present. 
So presence is everything. I've, I've interviewed thousands of leaders over the years and talked to thousands of them. And when I ask the question, the very simple question, when are you at your best? When are you leading at your best? When are you 100% at your best? The most common response is when I'm fully present. Mm. Fully present. And I mean like, you know, really, really present. So that's the most common response. And presence takes a bit of training. It certainly does, especially with the uh, the super full calendars that we see nowadays yes. where every single minute and microsecond is accounted for uh mm. that, that becomes a bit of a challenge because how, how do you switch and you know we know that the mind doesn't physically multitask it it's constantly task switching mm. and you know you talked about you know stopping and breathing etc what are some other tools or techniques people can use to be able to switch quickly and go into uh, a state of presence for the next meeting or the next interaction or the next project they're on? Yeah, checking in with themselves constantly throughout the day is a good one. So often stress and tension and overwhelm, and you know, we live in a very overwhelming, fast-moving, relentless pace of life world where we're just constantly disconnected with ourselves in many ways. We're going to the next thing. We've just finished the last thing. We're you know, going to the next meeting. So we need to just stop and pause occasionally, check in with yourself physically, emotionally. How's my body feeling? What do I need to do? It might be you might need to go for a little walk, you know, go outside and get some fresh air. It might, it might need to tune into your senses. One of the most powerful ways to become present again, or one of the simplest ways, to be honest, is actually checking with yourself and checking with your senses. So if you're feeling a bit overwhelmed, you've got too many... Uh, windows open on your computer and you're multitasking and you're trying to context switch you know, continuously just stop pause and and look around you what do i see right now what do i feel right now what do i hear right now and tune into the senses and use your senses as a portal to enter the present moment so that's a really powerful one the other one i would say is also be mindful of your mind where does the mind go so observe your mind if you're feeling a bit stressed or anxious you ask yourself, what is it you're stressed and anxious about? Is it the next thing that's coming up? Or am I am I really on task? Am I really doing the task and project that I'm doing? Or am I thinking about the 700 other things that I have to do, creating stress and overwhelm and, and overstimulation? Yeah, I find uh, having a seven-week-old baby, <laughs> I shouldn't say seven-week-old, seven-week-young baby, yes. uh, that every time I go to... I feel like oh, I can have a breather now and just go to relax. The baby reminds me very quick that she's number one in the <laughs> presence mode right now, uh, which is quite fascinating. Yeah, that's great. Children are our best teachers of mindfulness, aren't they? They're, they're always in the moment. They're always present you know, all the way through. So they're good, good reminders for us. I'm not sure they're so good at uh, helping us with energy management and recovery. <laughs> I'm not getting out a lot of sleep at the moment, uh, but it's good fun. Which is a good lead in, you know, you took a, you're, you've got a new book uh, yes. called Beating Burnout, Finding Balance. And I mean, this throws up a whole lot of questions in my, in my head to begin with, which is great. And, um, but I think one of the biggest things that I find is there's people misdiagnose themselves a lot with having burnout. Mm. I mean, in most cases, they probably don't have it. And, and you know, it's, it's been 
sport to front and center, which is great. I, I think burnout yes. is really important, but I, I'm not sure. I'm still struggling to figure out whether it's a bigger issue as what they, what we see it as because yes. of the mis, self misdiagnosis. Um, mm. So, so what is burnout compared to uh, fatigued? Um, you know, uh, sort of overdoing it. Um, etc tiredness yeah. you know, your stress you know what what is different and unique about burnout that it's that sets itself out apart from those other areas where we we, we feel like we might be burnt out but not have yes. burnout yeah yeah that, you're right it is often misdiagnosed and people might feel like they're burnt out momentarily but they might just be tired or they might be distressed or they might just be exhausted so Burnout is the end result of all of that cumulative, you know, it cum accumulates over, it can be weeks, months or years, and the end result is burnout. And burnout usually is a sign of dysfunction. So when you're burnt out, you're not functional anymore. You cannot do your normal duties, your normal jobs that you normally do. They're all you know, very hard to do. A good, a good measure to know that you're burnt out is if you have a good night's sleep or a few good night's sleeps in a row and you're still exhausted, chances are you're burnt out in a way. So, so for example, if you're just tired and exhausted, you just had a big few projects going on at work or baby keeping you awake at night most, most evenings, you can probably recover from a bit of rest, recovery and sleep, eating well and doing all those good things for yourself, your own self-care, you'd recover after a few days. But if you're burnt out, you won't recover. And, and WHO... As you, as you probably have heard, they've got a, a definition of it. And there's three main components. So in 2019, they actually revised their their definition of of, um, of what burnout is. And, and I've actually got the actual definition here in my hand, which is basically burnout is a syndrome conceptualized as resulting from chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed. So workplace stress that you haven't been handling for a, a prolonged period of time. And the three main characteristics to diagnose burnout in many ways. Number one is that feeling of energy depletion and exhaustion. Like just that, that feeling like I'm done, I'm tired. More than I'm tired, I'm done. I'm, I'm just like, mm. you know, finished here. So it's a bit different to being tired. The second, the second piece is that increased mental distance from your job. So that feeling of disconnect from your job and also maybe the people around you. And maybe that feeling of negativity and a bit more cynical. So you're feeling disconnected with yourself disconnected with your job, disconnected from the people around you, you know, feeling of disconnect. That's number two. And then number three is that, like I said before, that, that reduced professional efficacy and efficiency. So what would normally be quite easy for you to do at work, let's say, you can't handle it anymore. Even the smallest job that somebody gives you, it tips you over the edge and you put your hand on your head, so I, I just can't do that. It's too much for me. So those three components there sort of really, really measure it. And they can be, they can sneak up on you in many ways. What I talk about in the book there is, you know, for the book itself, I actually interviewed around 200 people for burnout, which was actually quite sad in a way that I could find 200 people quite quickly in my direct network in some ways. But I interviewed them with a series of questions and 90% of the people that I interviewed didn't realise they were burning out until it was too late. Yeah until there was some sort of like physical manifestation or a crisis like a panic attack or some breakdown in some way mentally and physically and then it was like a lot more work to get back to functional again so they didn't realize 90 percent didn't realize 
of the 10% that did sort of have a bit of a, a feeling that something was not right, they were divided into two groups, five and five, 5% each. 5% realised they were burning out, they realised they were stressed and not coping very well and struggling, but they just didn't have the tools and mechanisms to, to get out of it. They didn't know what to do about it. And the other ones, they they felt they were working hard, especially a lot of the entrepreneurs and some of the um, executives that just work relentlessly hard to prove their worth. They just kept going no matter what. They ignored the signs, in other words. They saw the signs. They saw the you know, tight chest, shoulders, palpitations, stress and all those other feelings, but they actually ignored them totally, just, just kept going. Yeah, and this is really interesting. Uh, mm. The body has a very unique characteristic that it will uh, adapt exactly it adapts really well and i I notice this a lot with people who are athletes Mm. is that they're so used to having key triggers when they have overdone it all right when they've pushed it too hard they haven't got recovery right and it's a physical response they it's easy they can't run as fast they can't The reactions are slower, so it's super easy. But when it comes to most tasks in the workplace, it's a mental fatigue uh, Mm. in a way. It's not so much a physical fatigue unless you're in an extremely physical job or there's a catastrophic event. And so the body's adapting to it. So there's no real strong triggers. So for people who are in the workplace to try and prevent burnout is actually quite difficult, isn't it? Totally, yeah, because there's lots of symptoms that might be related to stress, lots of symptoms that might be related to overwhelm or overworked. But typically, you know, we look at three main areas of symptoms. You know, first of all, the physical ones you're talking about that you're feeling drained, then they're more obvious to see. You might feel drained, you might get headaches, you might get migraines, you might get sort of chest pains, just general aches and pains through the body low immunity so they're, they're pretty obvious poor sleep patterns and being tired but then there's also the emotional sort of symptoms that you might get which you feel a bit um bit defeated and lonely sometimes you might emotionally eat for example lack of self-worth you might feel a bit trapped so these are a bit more subtle sometimes these are also signs of burnout lack of purpose lack of direction in many ways many people that are interviewed around burnout they feel lack of being valued in their workplace lack of purpose and lack of direction so that's another sign And then there's also the behavioral symptoms in many ways. So you might withdraw, you might not go to meetings, you might not show your face on the on the teams or the zoom screen and you start, you know, withdrawing from people around you. And all of these are happening over time. So if we can read the signs and catch some of these things and do something about them to get back to that sort of green zone and that performance zone zone again, we can do it. Otherwise, it's a lot harder once we've fully burnt out to get back to functional again. Very much so. And look, you know, I've, I've seen a number of people get chronic fatigue, but love yes. their job, love every single thing they're doing, um, and are in a space where uh, I think, you know, and, and made me think here a little bit is that, you know, they they feel valued still in their jobs. They love what yes. they do, but yes, they can get extremely tired and get, can get quite ill, but they, they're they wanting to work while they're ill. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're so passionate about what they're doing. So, yeah, so and entrepreneurs are sometimes the, the most guilty of that because they love what they do with such a passion and they just keep working and striving without that balance. You know, basically, in some ways, it's about finding that balance there, that sort of work, 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 but also rest 
And then, and an athlete knows that very well, right? An athlete, a, a definitely Olympic athlete, there's periods of hard performance and training, but there's also periods of rest and renewal and active mm. recovery. So that's the balance there that we need to find. And I think that's really important. I think for people that uh, in the workforce, it is around proactive and mm. proactive recovery, proactive putting things in place because you can't be reactive on it because by the time you really know there's something wrong, you're a long way deep down a very big hole and it's very difficult to get yourself back up. And yeah. so the more that we can create those spaces where you are proactive at it, and and I think one of the difficult things is to, especially when you're an entrepreneur, entrepreneur yeah. is there's times where you have to push hard because you've got to, you, you have to get past a certain threshold before you can bring on more employees That's right. before you think you can take a break and then what's interesting right you think you can hire more staff and it's going to be a lot easier for you and it gets harder because <laughs> now you've got more people to deal with and I, i'm at certain points yes it does break down but you've got to be prepared to work damn hard but you've yeah. even got to be more tuned into being proactive because if you don't put those measures in place and yeah. you don't look for the very small triggers you can get yourself in a space where you've had enough of the business after two or three years and you give up right at the point where the business is about to really take off and you can really thrive so yes, it's a tough definitely. One. really really tough space uh so curious let's have a bit of fun here um yeah so back in 2013, uh, I flatlined for the third time, ended up in hospital. Oh, wow. Uh, and this time around, um, it really affected me for the first time. The first two times I was bulletproof. I was, I was a lot younger um, yes. as an athlete. And, you know, and I think it, I got to a point where now I had a wife. Mm -hmm. And so I had a greater responsibility and I, I could see how that affected her, but also my colleagues. Um, and, you know, I realized at that point I really needed to make a change, but I hadn't actually realized I'd worked um, 70 to 80 hours a week for 302 days straight. Wow. Um, and here I was, uh, you know, a flatline. So I'm going to leave it at that point and I want you to take over now. I, I want to see you in coaching action here, if you don't mind, um, okay. because I think it'd be really interesting. What type of questions would you ask in this situation to draw out whether this is burnout, whether this is, um, you know, a hereditary thing or whatever it may be? I, I'm really curious to see yeah. are you up for it. Yeah, yeah, sure. Why not? Yeah, let's have a bit of fun with this. So, so what exactly happened? What was the the crisis point? You you flatlined for for how long? Like you you. Yeah, cool. So yeah. so I went into a spate of atrial fibrillation. Okay. And then into a space where I would flatline, uh, for forty five seconds or more. Wow. Um, and so they never had to use the paddles, but it was very much there. Mm -hmm. um, and I was then in a state of atrial fibrillation for 10 days um, straight uh, with interventions not working. Yeah, right. Mm. And what sort of work were you doing for those 70 or 80 hours? Uh, um, so I was leading a team of 500 at a integrated uh, mind, health, sport, hospitality, education facility in Phuket. Yeah. Um, so we were yeah. dealing with 
you know, people from small kids and parents and families right through to uh, multiple Olympic champions, Formula One drivers, uh, etc. Was it stressful for you? I loved every minute of my work. Yeah. I loved so, yeah. every minute of it, but uh, highly stressful. Uh, every conversation, yeah. every email, every... Um, Every project was on a different topic and I had to be able to switch really fast Yeah. Um, in that environment. And you're dealing with a billionaire owner uh, on a project that had had huge investment and was the first of its kind in the world. And mm. you're trying to get a return on that really fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you love what you're doing, but you're still working relentlessly hard on all of these aspects of the business to sort of keep up because yeah, you, know, you wanted to prove your worth to the to the owner to the billionaire owner, etc. And so you're working crazy hours. Were you doing any thing to look after yourself? Any self care practices like you know sleeping well, eating, exercising, all those sort of things? Were they sort of going out the window a bit? <laughs> they were all out the window. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd found a. I'd found a something that really sung to my heart. And you know what's crazy, right? Like you're dealing in mind, health, uh, sport. Yes. Uh, yeah. You know, even with regards to the food, we had an organic farm and like highest quality food and, um, you know, education was around emotional and social well-being. It was one of the world leading schools in that at that point. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so you had everything around you. Uh, but for me, it was just, I'm on yeah, and we've got to make this happen. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to make yeah. this happen. It wasn't, I'm forced to, it was like, this is, this isn't the ultimate, not, not quite dream, but it was the, yeah, it was yeah. an ultimate space to be working in. Yeah. It sounds very exciting. Definitely. You're working those crazy hours to keep that all up there. Were there any, were there any signs of palpitations or stress or any other like orange flags that might have been flags throughout that period um no. feeling lost. what was your energy levels like throughout this um on average on average good mm -hmm. but but I th maybe it was being overridden by the fact that there was such a strong purpose and such high passion for what you're doing yeah and what was your sleep like <laughs> uh, anywhere between three and maybe six hours if i was lucky uh, maybe uh, seven on the odd occasion <laughs> seven through sheer exhaustion maybe occasionally yeah um, or there was no dinner meeting that night so it was generally there was no dinner meeting would probably help <laughs> yeah yeah what about mental health uh, as in depression anxiety type sort of feeling no. are you feeling anxious no none of that because you're so driven right you're so yeah so pushing. So did you feel you were coping or did you feel you were struggling? Oh, at that point, coping. Yeah, coping? I felt yeah. everything was, was fine. Um, it was just go. The, the, the foot was down on the accelerator and we were going. This was a Formula yeah. One car and we weren't stopping for anything. And what made you stop? <laughs> Lying flat in, a, <laughs> flat in a hospital with people staring at me. With, yeah. uh, with the paddles in their hands ready to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, just just on the medical side there, um, hereditary, is there any hereditary no. sort of? No, none of that. So, 
It sounds like a burnout to me, brother. It sounds like a, a some sort of burnout because there's a, some of the signs that I'm seeing here, and you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Definitely, but one of the first stages of burnout in many ways is like, you know, you have this strong desire and drive to work at this unrelenting play, pace, basically. So it's one of the first signs: a to prove yourself to others or to prove yourself for yourself. And then as we go down the sort of spectrum of this, we lack self care. It takes over everything, like basically the work takes over everything. And then the, you know, the self, the feelings of lack of self care. So the lack of sleep, lack of eating well, lack of exercise has a cumulative effect. And then that, you know, can continue on till eventually, you know, you didn't experience the mental health issues so much, but you just kept driving, you know, with that purpose and direction driving you. And then the body just says, Hey, man, like that's enough. Like I can't keep going at this pace. Um, what do you feel? Yeah, it's interesting because I wouldn't term it burnout. Mm. Um, so how, how was your recovery? So was it an instant recovery? Was it uh, after the medical? No, it, is a, it is a medical condition in some way. Yeah. And so look, uh, within within three weeks, I, I would say I was pretty much back to normal, okay. but I the light switch had gone off. And, yeah. and it was a it was one sentence that come with someone I was working with there and they said we don't understand you come from a high performance background working with you know uh, one being an elite athlete but also working yeah. with many many elite athletes and coaches around the world and sports scientists but you haven't actually implemented those same things that you did so well exactly. there in the workplace and so following on I was able to implement them really really well Mm. and so be able to and, and that was really where the catalyst for me was around what i speak around now around break the ceo code yes uh, and yeah. the importance of scheduling your energy focusing your energy and investing in your energy so yeah. yeah so really within three weeks i was i was back um pretty strong again and it didn't take yes. too long to go back to full health so to me it wasn't burnout and yeah so that's unusual yeah that yeah. i agree i agree there that's unusual yeah. to recover so quickly if it was a burnout so yeah um, i'd run myself was, down like to me and this is where like i hadn't got chronic fatigue because it wouldn't leave yes. it on yeah um when you talk about stress and most of the time it was healthy stress it wasn't yeah. like a debilitating stress in the workplace like it, there was so much positivity going around mm, um, yes yeah. it was challenging and it was intense and, and things like that um but yeah to me i just run myself down and the and the body just couldn't keep up with it and so there was no, there was never a challenge mentally around. I never had any fog or anything like that, even though I was tired, like even though I didn't have enough sleep, yeah. Yeah. which is quite fascinating. But it was, it just made me realize that it's so different to being an athlete where you have those strong triggers where when things aren't going, when, when you're not getting recovery right. But yeah, that mental side, Ooh. it has to be so proactive. I, I agree. And, and what I'll differentiate here is, you know, physical burnout versus mental burnout. Mm. And mental burnout is often what we think about when we think about burnout because it's work-related. But you can also have a physical burnout without the mental symptoms so much. This reminds me very much of a, another client that I had who actually was working multiple jobs around the world, mm. you know, um, working across multiple time zones, flying here, there and everywhere. He almost wore it as a badge. Just, Mello, I did an all-nighter last night. I worked, you know all night all the way through then i was working in the airport lounge and on the airport and then on the airplane 
and mentally he was driven he he ran you know many businesses very successful in what he did but physically his body says uh-uh, i'm not doing this anymore and basically stopped producing testosterone wow. stopped producing hormones and he was hospitalized in intensive care for a fair while so he had that physical burnout not so much mentally but the physical burnout so a very similar case it's it's fascinating uh it's a fascinating space and mm-hmm. Uh, to to even look at how, how do we support people, and I uh, I think one of the big things is as human beings we are boundary sinking, uh, boundary sinking, uh, seek, seeking, not sinking, seeking, <laughs> seeking um, beings in a way, and mm. we're always looking for that boundary. You know, when you're a young kid, you learn to ride a bike and you keep going faster and faster until you hit a tree or fall over or something, and hopefully you don't go off the cliff. Uh, But we're always seeking boundaries. And I think the role of a leader and a role of an organization is important that they provide flexible boundaries. They put boundaries in place to protect the the people in the organization from going into these long-term health issues that can Mm -hmm. affect them well beyond that workplace. And, you know, as much as you look at someone like Elon Musk and there's a lot of loyalists that love being there because of the vision um, of putting someone on the moon or an electric car, etc., and, yes. and whatever else he chases, at what cost? Yes. At what cost to the human being? And I, I see this too often where there are people that, you know, they don't take their responsibility... Um, strong enough in a way. No, I agree. I, I, I coach a lot of surgeons, actually, a lot of doctors, mm-hmm. surgeons, even professors. And these guys obviously know their work. They know the body back to front. They know the the effects of stress. And some of them work 70 and 80 hours a week because they care about their patients and they, they get caught up in the business of the machine there. At what cost exactly is what you're asking and when, when is when is enough? Usually the work that I do with them is you know, trying to strip back some of those hours and um, claim, reclaim half a day for yourself or reclaim some of those self-care practices. And one of the professors that I coach, he's pretty much written the book on all the things that I talk about. So he knows it theoretically, but actually practicing the practices is another story. <laughs> Isn't it fascinating? So many people go into professions to cure something that they can't <laughs> <live for themselves>. <laughs> exactly <laughs> uh, you've you know in your book um yeah we've, we've obviously discussing a lot about burnout here but you talk about yeah. beating burnout and finding balance tell us tell us a little bit more about um what people can expect in the book yeah the book's a bit different in a way so um, it is a self-help book. It's a well-being book. It's a, um, in some ways, leadership book. In some ways, in many ways. So, the book is actually framed with nine nine chapters. There's nine chapters all in all, and each of them has a lesson in there, a main, a, main, a primary lesson. So it might be on resilience. It might be on um, burnout. It might be on purpose. It might be on a whole range of things. But each chapter is framed by one of my stories. So it might be an experience I had in Rwanda, for example, with machine gun in my ribs, and that you know, taught me a certain lesson. So I, so I share the lesson that I learned from that experience and then how that can help others in many ways. So there's a primary lesson. I also interviewed many CEOs and leaders for the, for the book itself. So it's not only my stories, it's also their stories and their experiences in many ways. So. I didn't want it to be just one-sided. And to be honest, I kept, I tried to keep it 
as um, simple as possible. Well, I tried to um, simplify the complex. So there's lots of complex sort of um, systems in there and models in there, but I wanted to make them as simple and applicable as possible. So at the end of each chapter, there'll be some sort of practice or some sort of homework to do that you can take home and implement into your life. So yeah, it's great. I'm really, really proud of it. I only just released uh, this week. It's out in the world and uh, already getting you know great feedback. And yeah, it's a little bit different, sort of entertaining, interesting, but also there's some very valuable um, tips in there. Yeah, congratulations on getting the book out there. It's always exciting yeah, when yeah. you can release something out into the world. Uh, who is it for? Is it is it more designed for the working uh, person or you know, could it be a stay-at-home parent? Could it be someone in college? Uh, who's it designed for? Initially, it was designed when I was initially had the idea of the book. It was initially designed for leaders in many ways and, and, and CEOs and executives in many ways. And as I started writing, I thought, wow, this is for everybody, actually, mm. you know, for any everybody and anybody in, in many ways. So the lessons there are universal across the board. Um, and not only is it about you know, beating burnout, it's actually also about preventing it and just finding meaning and purpose in life too. So having a bit more direction, having a bit more purpose, understanding your values. So. The book's for everybody, to be honest, and I think it crosses the, the board there. But there's definitely some great, um, if you're a high performer, typically high performer, high achiever in many ways that you know wants to push the bar a little bit without burning out, and then obviously this will help you. And what's the biggest lesson you learned about yourself when you were writing the book? Oh, when I was writing the book, it's actually quite interesting because I, I feel... I changed while writing the book, actually, to be honest. Writing the book is quite an experience. Luckily, my family were in Switzerland, so my wife and kids went over to Switzerland for six weeks and gave me a bit of space. So it was just me and my dog uh, writing the book, so I had the, the capacity to sort of like really be in it. I learned that it's quite a lonely experience writing a book in many ways, but it's also quite liberating in many ways. So it helped me to consolidate and really believe in the work that I've done over the last three decades and really the power of mindfulness underneath it, the power of meditation, the power of the breath. You know, it, was, it was a consolidating of my learnings and putting them in the most compact package possible you know, to get it out to the world. So I, I learned to believe in myself in more. In my message is, is, is valuable, I feel. And my message is, is it's helped many people over the years. I've helped thousands of people over the years with seminars and workshops and one-on-one -on -one coaching that I do. And I feel that, yeah, I really believe in the message. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, we all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people in the world ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? When was the last time? Oh, you have to think about that. That's a bit of a tongue twister. Um, only last week, actually, um, my book got picked up by an audiobook company, actually, and I was asked to read my whole book, um, which is you know, 270 pages. So it was the first time I've ever read with a microphone in a studio and reading uh, 58,000 words or whatever it is, challenging. My vocal cords were exhausted and uh, it was an amazing experience. So that was the last time, it was only last week. And my when I when I got asked to do the audio book, my only stipulation was I wanted to read it myself because they're my stories. Brilliant. You know, I don't want somebody else to read it. So so I took on the challenge. Little did I know it was quite a challenge, but it was good. Yeah, we've we've nailed it now, so it's finished. I look forward to listening to it. 
What is the one question that you would love to solve? The one question that I would love to solve. Well, there's the obvious one. Why are we here? <laughs> like that's the obvious. That's the first one that comes to mind. Um, maybe why do we do this to ourselves? <laughs> Great question. Yeah. yeah, why do we do this to ourselves? Very good. I like that one. Uh, for you, what is an inspiring great leader and who is someone that you consider to be inspire, inspiring great leader for you? Mm, there's the big ones. There's obviously the, the Dalai Lamas um, of the world. The Dalai Lama definitely an inspiring spiritual leader in many ways. Also, you know, with the message of compassion and kindness and, and all those sort of things. Um, someone, someone more immediate um, almost think about this is who, who would I like to invite over for dinner and have a chat with them and, and have a, a nice leader. I do like Richard Branson for his fun you know, and uh, frivolity. I like to have a bit of fun in there. So, yeah, I think they're all inspiring for different reasons in, in some ways. Dalai Lama for his spirituality, Richard Branson for his fun element. Um, yeah, that's all that comes to mind right now. A nice intimate dinner. Nice yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's been it's been fascinating listening to you today and i know there's many people out there that would love to learn more about what you do and and hear more around how they can beat burnout and find balance in their life so what is the best way people can connect with you easiest would be my website basically which is my name melokalako.com i can spell that if you like m-e-l-o C-A-L-A-R-C-O.com and you'll find everything on there. You know, the books on there, some resources, some tips and things like that. I am on the socials, of course, the LinkedIn's, the Instagram's, a bit of Facebook. Um, LinkedIn's probably the best other place to catch me secondarily. Um, yeah, love to hear from, from you. Love to hear from people. If I can support in any way, reach out and uh, yeah, anytime. Mello, it's been uh, an absolute pleasure speaking with you today and I'm sure the conversation uh, hit it off in a couple of different directions that you weren't expecting, uh, which was fantastic. I, I loved, you know, hearing about your passion to see the world, um, see, learn different perspectives, uh, you know, step outside what you had always known as a as a child, and to do that on a bike and uh, hopefully inside that book mm. is the machine gun sticking in the side. Yeah, of your is. ribs because that's opened up a massive loop for me so i'm curious <laughs> to read about that i didn't want you to answer it in the session so i'm glad you didn't um you know to to, to having a look at burnout and I, I just want to acknowledge you and thank you for taking the opportunity to to kind of take people through a bit of a coaching session there too it's not something we've ever done on this show before and it's yeah. probably not something you do too often on a podcast so uh yeah thank you for that and just congratulations on the new book uh, for those who haven't caught the title yet, it is Beating Burnout, Finding Balance. It's available in all good bookstores near you. So check it out. We can, I'm sure you can find it on Amazon. We will chuck all the details in the show notes as well about how to connect with you, Mello. Uh, yeah. So thank you very much for your amazing grace and your ability to um, you know, push forward and find a solution to help the world be happier and healthier. Thank you. Thank you so much, Craig. I love the questions and putting me on the spot there with a bit of coaching. Can I ask you to do one thing? Love to. 
No more flatlining, please. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've, I've, got, I've got the ECG recording uh, for proof, and that's all I need. <laughs> thank, you so, thank you so much. Thank you so much, and thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. It's time for you to join the Inspiring Great Leaders movement by visiting craigjohns.com.au. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to hashtag inspiring great leaders. We would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the Craig Johns LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next inspiring great leaders podcast where the ordinary don't belong.